Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. A chair is still a chair Even when there's no one sitting there But a chair is not a house And a house is not a home When there's no one there to hold you tight so that's sort of a platonic argument, right? A chair is still a chair if there's no one sitting there. Uh, and we could thank the lyricist Hal David for sending us down that road. We're going to talk a lot about chairs today. Uh, in fact, before we start, let me just ask you to do something really quickly. Maybe you should do it after the show. But kind of close your eyes and try to figure out how many chairs you have in your house or your apartment, wherever it is you live. I bet you have more chairs than you would have just sort of said spitting out the answer. Right? Because there's the ones around the dining room table. Maybe there's, you have some out on the porch. You might have six chairs out there on the deck. Uh, then there's the chair that's in the bedroom that you throw your clothes in. <laughs> Nobody ever sits in that chair. Um, I could be just talking about myself now. Uh, but all over your house, right? you got a lot of chairs. Um, and I'm sitting in a chair right now in a radio studio. Uh, and everybody else who's working on the show is sitting in a chair, too. We are a species of animal that sits in chairs. We're going to try to figure out what that means, kind of unpack it a little bit today. We have the perfect guest to do it and certainly the, the perfect person to begin with. So excited to have on the show, Vitol Rybczynski, architect, emeritus professor of urbanism at the University of Pennsylvania, the author of, among other things, Now I Sit Me Down from Klismos to Plastic Chair and Natural History. Uh, his latest book is The Story of Architecture. So, first of all, Vitol Rybczynski, welcome to our show. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And since, uh, and in honor of your newer book, let's begin with, uh, there's almost no way to have this conversation and not say this quote at some point, but the German-born ar architect uh, Ludwig Mies van der Rohe said famously, a chair is a very difficult object. A skyscraper is almost easier. That is why Chippendale is famous. What, in your opinion, is Mies van der Rohe talking about there? Well, he, he first of all, that it's important to say he, he knows what he's talking about because yes. he designed several chairs. <laughs> and I think chairs are, are complicated because, because the human body is complicated. And a chair, you know, you we think of it just as something to sit on, but you've got to you've got to sit down and get up. So there's there's those motions, and then you've got to be comfortable while you're sitting, and you you've got to be able to move around. And depending on the chair, you you might be at a table or you might be just relaxing in an easy chair. But it, there are really many things going on, and of course you have to build the chair and fabricate it and so so there's a a great complexity and there isn't 
a lot of room for error because if you if you sit in a chair and you don't feel comfortable you get up you it's it's failed somehow and i think that's what mies was talking about you know uh speaking of him and his chairs and we should say he designed some of the most famous buildings in the world too uh but when i look at that barcelona chair what i see vulgarian that i am I see all the um, chairs or whatever you would call them in airport waiting lounges. Um, the, there's something about those. And I'm sure his is brilliant and wonderful and great to sit in. And these things are junk meant to just kind of make us momentarily placid. But there's a, I don't know, cause there's kind of a thin distinction maybe between excellence and, uh, and something considerably less than excellence. Well, I'm not sure. I'm. I don't disagree with you because I'm. I don't. I'm not sure that that Barcelona chair is really such a great chair. <laughs> and it's important. It's important to know that he designed it actually for a very special occasion. It was. It, it was designed for the King of Spain opening the Barcelona Pavilion, which, which was the German Pavilion in in a Barcelona World Fair, and the the. the chair was designed specifically for that one function. So it's a kind of throne. Uh, if you think about, though, the chair, for instance, has no arms. So you're right about the airports, because airport chairs have no have lots of arms. But it has no arms, so it's a, a difficult chair to get in and out of. Uh, you sort of drop into it. Uh, it's, it's leather, and you kind of slide. It's not a terribly comfortable chair. It's a very beautiful chair. Mm -hmm. But it's people like to look at it, but it's it's in fact not a comfortable chair. It's also made out of uh, steel, and it's so it's a very heavy chair. It's not something you can easily move around. I I would say it's probably one of the heaviest easy chairs you could imagine. Most chairs like a a wing chair are made out of wood, so they're much lighter. Mm. So I want to come back to the idea of status in chairs. But before we do that, we should say that you have looked carefully into the history, the origins, the wellsprings of the chair. We just finished two days ago doing a full show with your U of Penn colleague, Emily Wilson, about her new translation of the Iliad. Certainly in the Iliad, there are chairs. Achilles is sitting in chairs when he's, when he's sitting out the war. He's sitting in a chair quite frequently. Uh, and Odysseus in the Odyssey uh, is uh, brought to a beautiful chair by Circe after she's kind of cleaned him up a little bit and given him a shower. She sits down in this beautiful chair. So the chair has, well, the chair goes back even farther than that, right? The chair goes back certainly to the to the ancient Egyptians, much older than the than the Greeks. The Greeks, on the other hand, were were a democratic society, and they made chairs for everyday use. The chairs in, that the Egyptians made were reserved for very very important people, the pharaoh and that family. Uh, so there was there's that difference, uh, but there's. It's true. What you said at the beginning of the show is not completely true because chairs are not human. They're actually <laughs> cultural. Mm -hmm. There are lots of people who, who sophisticated societies like Persia or Japan or China for a long time. Uh, they didn't have chairs. Right. They sat on the floor. They knew about chairs. It wasn't ignorance. And they certainly had the skills to build chairs, but they just weren't interested. So it's so, a... One of the great sort of puzzles is like what brings the Greeks and the and the Egyptians up from the ground, and they don't they could sit on cushions, but they decide to sit higher up on in chairs. 
they, by the way, the Greeks and Egyptians both ate lying down on sofa, sort mm. of sofa beds. Uh, so, so they were very different from, from us in that respect. And yet we can relate to them because they're sitting in a chair and we, and it's, it's a chair that's very identifiable to us. Hey, let's talk about that Greek chair for a second. It's right there in the title of your book, the Klismos. Um, this is a kind of mysterious chair, right? It almost appears out of nowhere as a part of, as opposed to being part of the evolution of chairs. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, you've got this very original-looking chair that they use, and then people stop using it for a really long time. Right? It appears and then it disappears. Yes, the the the. The gift that the the Egyptians gave us was that they had tombs, and so the, we literally have Egyptian chairs because they survived in these very dry tombs for thousands of years. The Greek chairs, of course, all disappeared because they were made of wood, and they just over the centuries disappeared. And so, what we have are drawings and pottery with drawings of these chairs and sculptures with showing these chairs, but we don't actually have the chairs themselves. Uh, so the, as you said, the mystery is that the Romans who copied a lot of things from the Greeks, uh, they, they did not copy that chair. So when Roman culture becomes predominant, that chair sort of disappears. And it, it, it's only literally hundreds of years later when the Europeans become interested in, in Greek culture and, and Greece sort of opens up to them because the, the Turks, the Turkish occupation kept Greece sort of isolated, uh, that they rediscover that chair and, and, and see the drawings and the pottery and so on. And then and you get a whole bunch of European versions of the Greek chair uh, during the sort of Georgian period. And, and all, all European countries, you find sort of interpretations of the Greek chair. And the chair at a certain point also, for, I mean, for quite a while, the chair is in, intrinsically a status symbol. Either you have a chair or you don't. And not everybody does have a chair. Um, there, there's, there are millennia, I think, where, you know, if you have a chair, that means you're doing pretty well because you got a chair. Yes, if you have a chair, you're the chairman and you're in charge and everybody else is probably on a stool uh, or a bench or if they're lower down the social ladder, they're sitting on the floor. They might be a cushion or they might simply be sitting on the floor. And so you see old drawings of medieval Europe, Bruegel or something like that. And you see that people are not sitting on chairs. They're sitting on the ground or maybe they're sitting on a barrel or a bucket or something improvised. Uh, so you're, yes, for, for hundreds of years, only important people sat on chairs almost by kind of regulation. So uh, the chair is reserved. The, you know, the throne is, of course, the ultimate chair. But, you know, the archbishop has a chair, some very important people, and then the rest of the people don't get a chair, and they're actually not allowed to have a chair. Again, not because their chairs are so hard to make. Uh, and they're very, those those chairs, the thrones are all very uncomfortable. They're rather heavy wooden constructions, uh, but they're status. And, and status and chairs, even for us, continues throughout history. There's this interesting interplay between the two. 
even when you give a dinner party, uh, if you have a conventional dining room table set up, there's a pretty good chance that the chairs on either end of the table uh, have arms, and then the ones arrayed along the, the long part of the table do not, which strikes me as implicitly hierarchical. Very much so, yes. It, 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 it sort of singles out the host and hostess as, as more important people. And I don't know if your listeners remember or are old enough to have seen uh, All in the Family, but the protagonist, Archie Bunker, had a chair and nobody was allowed to sit in it. And it was, it was a, an old sort of beat up wing chair, but it was a very important sort of symbol you know, when he wasn't home, the chair was almost a stand-in for him because it was it was his chair, and it was very important that that he only he was allowed to sit in it. Yeah, but let, let me just do a little bit more semiotics on Archie and in his chair because I think it's interesting too. Because all in the family is also about something that uh, a conversation that continues in a pretty toxic way uh, in America uh, even today, and that's about sort of people losing their place, people uh, the slippage of status, uh, particularly among white males, and anxiety about that slippage. And the reason that we know about Archie and his chair is because Meathead, his son-in-law, <laughs> was always sitting in it whenever Archie wasn't there. Meathead kind of made a point of sitting in the chair. So there are you can find sort of supercuts now on the internet that's just Charlie, it was just Archie telling uh, his son-in-law to get the hell out of his chair. And yes, me, yes. I, I think it really becomes an, uh, symbolic not only of Archie, but of his anxiety about place in society. Yes, and also of a kind of old-fashionedness that that is passing. Uh, for instance, if, if you would have gone to a public place in in the sort of pre-war America, which which Archie sort of symbolizes, uh, you would not find people sitting on the floor. Mm-hmm. I mean, unless they were hobos or, or something like that. Whereas if today, if you go to an airport, you you see dozens of people sitting on the floor. They're usually teenagers, probably because it's just you need a little more flexibility to get up and down. But uh, it's it becomes it it's a very striking thing that it's, it's no longer seen as Archie undoubtedly would have seen sitting on the floor as something that you just didn't do it was just too sort of low class for him and and now it's it's really become very common. Um, I want to also talk about a particularly ubiquitous chair, although maybe a little less ubiquitous these days. Uh, its um, official name typically is the monoblock. This is a, usually a type of outdoor furniture. It's stackable. The white version is the one that you, we probably see the most. It has arms. It's uh, to the point of its name, it's all just one piece of extruded or something plastic. You, you'll know exactly, or molded or something. Uh, and and really, in the late '80s and into the '90s, I mean, if you if you are making a movie and you want to tell people that it's the late '80s or the '90s without really telling them that, a great way to do that would be to put a lot of those freaking white chairs around because they they were a thing. But they have kind of an interesting history, and they even go back, I think, to a pretty significant Italian designer, Joe Colombo, right? Uh, there were some plastic chairs at the beginning. They weren't, they were sort of, they predated the technology because the technology of plastic chairs is this enormous machine. It's the size of a, a small bus, like a Volkswagen bus. And, it, and they inject mold, uh, the, the plastic. You put pellets in, the ma- machine melts them, and it injects them into a mold, and then whatever you're molding pops out. It takes about 60 seconds. 
and and it's it's completely ready to use. It's not hot. It's not sticky. It's just ready. And the the thing about these machines is you could mold anything. You can mold a bucket, you know, or a laundry basket, or a tub, or or a chair. So they what was interesting about the plastic chairs is that they develop not from designers so much as from the industry that's just looking for stuff to make because <laughs> they want to maximize their machines. And so you, that's why the chairs initially are so, I dare say, ugly, because they're, they're simply taking a chair and kind of in a crude way, turning it into something that's that you can that you can inject mold. And at the on the other side, on the technical side, though, that, that what's there's two things about the monoblock chair. One is it's a global chair. It's everywhere mm -hmm. in the world. It's, it's not. It, it's I, I can't. We don't know exactly where it started. Nobody wants to take credit for it. <laughs> <laughs> so there's no there's no patents or anything. And it may have been in Italy. It may have been in France. We're not really not sure. But it spread around the world. Um, one is that the, the molds get used up over time, and then they they get they get sold. Sort of a, a French mold will be sold to say somebody in Turkey or India or Pakistan. And, and that way they spread around the world. Uh, and the other thing is that it is in fact a very uh, durable chair because it has no joints. It's the dream of chair builders over the, over the centuries was to simplify the chair to get rid of the joints because the joints were where the chairs failed. You know, if you lean back on a chair or you use it over time, it's the joints that get loose. And if you get rid of the joints, which the monoblock chair does, it, it's almost indestructible. Uh, of course, that's a problem because that's why they hang around so <laughs> long. Right. You, you can't, you can't. Somebody, somebody pointed out to me that when this was back in the, in the days of, of the, when the Middle East, as it is once again, was had wars and, and bombers and things like that. And you would always see these chairs scattered around say a cafe was bombed and the chairs never were never in pieces they were always together because they're so they're they literally are indestructible and of course extremely cheap i mean ten dollars would be a price here and i'm sure in a developing country it would be much less than that so and and they become a a true global chair that's affordable and used around the world for everything i mean you see people getting little barber shops in the street yeah. uh, in India or Pakistan will have those chairs and and as well as restaurants homes i mean they they're simply everywhere they're they're sort of an odd combination of an abomination and perfect design they're they're sort of both uh, particularly in that exactly. sense, sense of affordability exactly. too and so mm -hmm. with that in mind actually let's go back about 150 years or so before the uh, the monoblock chair um so lily tyson the very smart and charming person you've been dealing with the producer of this episode grew up in the town of barkhamstead Bar connecticut which, which was the original location of lambert hitchcock's so-called hitchcock chair factory. That's kind of another instance, I think, in America of Americans suddenly being able to afford, not that we can afford a monoblock chair, but afford a kind of nice chair. This is one of the earlier versions of a mass-produced wooden chair that has a little bit of an aesthetic to it, right? Yes, yes. It, it was I mean, the Windsor chairs are originally English, but they, there are many great American Windsor chairs. 
and in it, Boston, I think it started in New England and it sort of spread westward from there. And they were they were the first chairs that you could mass produce. So you don't need craftsmen for those chairs, but because they're made out of little sticks, they're actually very comfortable. And the, the, the seats are usually carved to give a, a, a shake. They're not perfectly flat, but they, they're, they're, they're a mass-produced chair, which means it doesn't have to cost a lot. And yet they have, uh, they're, they're really very comfortable. And we know that from history that they also were a kind of democratic chair. I mean, George Washington had these kind of wooden Windsor chairs on the porch at, at Mount Vernon. Uh, we've seen paintings of, if you see paintings of the signing of the declaration, that's the chairs that are in the hall. They're all, so these were not, these were not seen as sort of low class. These were just a chair that, that all kinds of people could use. And it was perfectly okay to, to have them in a fancy home or, or, you know, in a very kind of affordable, you know, a tavern or something like that. So uh, chairs obviously have gotten more and more specialized, and so now you've got the chair that's on your boat for when you hook the marlin, and you, you mm -hmm. built yourself in, and it pivots around, and you have gamers now, gamers, uh, the gamer's chair for video gamers has become uh, a thing that that mm -hmm. has a special kind of design and and good and fat bad features. Um, there's, of course, the chair that they strap you into when they're going to electrocute you. Lots of specialization in chairs. But I'm also wondering, having thought about this so much and written so eloquently, about it. I don't know. Is there a chair that you really think is a very, very good chair that you are happy to own and occasionally be sitting in? I mean, ultimately, it depends what you're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I love wing chairs. I like them for reading and for they're, they're, they're upholstered everywhere. They're very comfortable. They look nice. Uh, but they're, of course, they're not some restaurants try to use them for for restaurant for dining and they're quite inappropriate for that because you're not sitting close you know you're not vertical like in a dining chair so it really does depend what you're doing and the chair i'm sitting in now is is one of those ergonomic task chairs which are terrific for working i mean i wouldn't sit in it for for kind of relaxing and and just reading something but they for sitting at a table and and or working at a computer they're they're really very good chairs they're comfortable and you can sit in them a long time without feeling uncomfortable um, we're going to have to pause there, uh, although I could talk a lot longer to Vitold mm -hmm. Rybczynski. It's such an honor to have you, architect emeritus professor of urbanism at the University of Pennsylvania, author of Now I Sit Me Down, From Klismos to Plastic Chair, A Natural History. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Okay, we'll take a break, and then we're going to talk to somebody, somebody quite well known to Vitold Rybczynski, who thinks, eh, maybe not sit in chairs so much at all. Maybe. And there's a breeze There's a shadow You can't see my eyes And the sea is just a wetter version of the sky There's a shadow You can't see my eyes Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. 
Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. You notice there wasn't a chair? Our next guest would say, maybe that's kind of a good thing. I mean, it really is true. Uh, hats off to Lily Tyson. I mean, if you're going to do a show like this about chairs, there's two people you really need to get, and we've got both of them. Uh, told Rybczynski and now Galen Kranz, uh, a professor of professor emerita of architecture at the University of California at Berkeley, a founding member of the Association for Body Conscious Design. Uh, she's the author of The Chair, Rethinking Culture, Body, and Design, among other books. She is a certified teacher of the Alexander Technique, um, which is not unrelated to what we're about to talk about uh, here. Uh, Galen Kranz, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. So, um, in a way, I think you're a sociologist by original training. You came to this partly just out of need, right? You, You have a medical condition which made it painful and difficult for you to sit in chairs. That's correct. I I have a scoliosis that required that I think, um, well, that I learn how to move uh, efficiently. And in that process, I began to realize that there were problems, not only for me, but for everybody um, in chairs, in design of chairs. I think you had an aha, eureka kind of moment where you suddenly thought, whoa, medical problems, chairs, there's maybe more of a link than had pre- previously been assumed. Yeah, the, the aha moment was um, after I started training mid-career to become a teacher of the Alexander Technique, and I thought, well, I, I'm going to study chairs because that's where the body and the environment come together. I'm going to learn a lot about the body, but I'm supposed to know, you know, I'm my job is to care about the environment. So where do those two come together? Well, chairs. So I ran a seminar and we looked at everything there was you could know about chairs, their social history, their um, construction and um, their style history and so forth. But I left that kind of confused about the ergonomic literature because it had a lot of internal contradictions. 
And that summer, uh, still kind of scratching my head as it were, I w- visited a friend who'd gone to England, in England, who had gone to Africa to teach English after university. She was showing me photographs of the people that she um, had worked with. And I was looking at them with my relatively new Alexander eyes and saying, oh, some are good, some are some have good alignment, some have less good alignment, just like us. And then there were these two special, there was a guy that stood out as perfect. Um, more, he, had, he was upright, his shoulders were neither pinned back nor rounded forward. His head uh, was on top of the spine, the face leading, but without dragging the neck forward. Everything was perfect. And there was another guy like him. And then my friend said, without knowing of my interest in shares, Oh, that's funny. The two you picked out are two that um, grew up in a village that didn't have a missionary school, so they never sat at tables and chairs. Mm. <laughs> that was the trumpet for me, and that was the drum roll or whatever. That was the birth of the hypothesis. Yeah. Oh, I see. It's not good chair design or bad chair design. There's something wrong with chairs per se, and I have to find out what that is. So part of what it is, actually, you know, in Greek myth, we get the bed of Procrustes. He's an innkeeper, and he would put people on a bed and then say they were too short and put them on a rack and stretch them out, and then he would say they were too long, and he'd chop off their feet. Uh, and But there's something about chair design that's essentially Procrustean, particularly the way that you write about it, that if you start with a kind of right-angle seated posture and start then start chasing the problems— um, so maybe people are sliding forward too much. This is clearly a big problem in the Adira- Adirondack Mountains because they've got these chairs that kind of t- tilt you way back into the chair. But it, the more that you do that, it is like Procrustes. You create a different problem for a different part of the body. Say a little bit more. Elaborate on that for us. Right. Uh, well, it's the what I discovered, I, I kept this list of all the medical problems associated with chair sitting, and the list got very long. But ultimately the most fundamental problem is the right angle uh, between the thighs and the, and the spine that the, it tends to round the lumbar curve, reverse the lumbar curve. And, but, uh, but before that, I mean, nobody wants to confront that problem because that's so fundamental. They don't want to change the angle. So what they notice is if you lean back on the chair back, they, meaning the designer, notices that your pelvis scoots forward. And so then they try to cant the seat up in the front to stop that forward slide. But you're still leaning back and reversing your lumbar curve, and then you're starting to uh, create a kind of scoop in the front of your rib cage, in your sternum, in your breastbone, you're kind of slumping a bit. So... um, (laughs) Then they say, okay, let's tip the chair back back further to undo that curve. So they take you back, but then your so your spine is now tipping a bit back while the seat is tipped a little bit up in the front, but you've got to have your head come forward. And so you get this really nasty curve between the head and the spine that makes a slumped neck. So, and on it goes, you just keep chasing the problem through the body and trying to resolve it, but creating another problem because you don't, some, nobody want culturally, nobody wants to confront the actual problem, which is 
the right angle seated posture. Because it, it turns out in outer space where we don't have any gravitational force on us, where do we go? We float in what they, NASA calls neutral body posture. And that's where the musculature of the front and the back are even. And what does that look like? It's not a right angle between your thigh and your back. No, no, it's a oblique open angle. And that's how we need to sit. But that requires that we change the height of chairs so that you can sit with your knees significantly lower than your hips. Mm. And if we change the height of the chairs, oh, then we have to change the height of the work surface, the tables, the desks, and the counters. And we have this huge investment in tables and chairs at a given, <laughs> at a given set of dimensions. So it's like this infrastructure we have that keeps us from changing and it underscores the fact that culture is very hard to change. One of my colleagues in architecture said, what I'm talking about is not hard technically to fix. It's not a big design. It's not a big engineering issue, but it sure is a hard, culturally hard to change our mindset. That's the real problem. Yeah. And, and I mean, there's two things I want to ask about here. The first one is, sitting implies motionlessness. And I remember, I'm old enough so that I remember when JFK was in the White House and he had a rocking chair. And the argument was he had a rocking chair because he had terrible back problems. That dated back to World War II, I believe. Turns out he had way more health problems than that, too. And the idea was the motion of the rocking chair was good for his back. And it it touched off, first of all, incredible craze of rocking chair ownership in this country. And to this day, there are multiple companies that you can buy a rocking chair that is either the official Kennedy rocker or the, the original Kennedy rocker. But I'm wondering about that. I mean, the argument was sort of movement. Even the little bit of movement of a rocking chair is better than just staying totally still. That is so true. A movement is the key. Um, and the rocking chair is probably the easiest way culturally for us to have an improvement without having to change the height of the chair seat and the corresponding height of your work surface. So everybody should have a rocker. Everybody. That's good advice. And then, then the other part of this is it's maybe a little bit less the idea of designing the perfect chair or designing the perfect way to sit in a chair, although we're going to talk about that, um, than it is just how much time we spend doing it. I mean, if we didn't spend so much time sitting in chairs, it would matter less, uh, all of the variables that we've been talking about so far. Yes, that <laughs> there's the biomechanical problem, but the worst problem actually is the sedentary business. Um, and about 10, 12 years ago, big study, big epidemiological studies were done um, that demonstrated that for every extra hour that you sit, I think beyond something like three hours total in a day, you increase your chance of early death from heart attack, stroke, or cancer. And these effects, believe it or not, are greater than being old, being fat, or being a smoker. So that's what people mean when they say sitting is the new smoking, because we now realize that for metabolic reasons, when we sit still and blood and lymph pool, we create all these health problems. 
Um, there are ways that we could change our culture so that we were sitting less or that it was less of a default assumption that you were going to sit in this or that situation. But the other thing we could do is maybe take some advice from a person like you about how to sit. If we must be in a chair for X amount of time, um, we don't necessarily let have to let the chair be the boss of us. We can decide how we want to sit. Right. You you can sit at, at the very edge of your chair. Um, walk your sit bones out to the edge and like if you're in a meeting and then you can drop one you can't drop both knees below your hips uh, but you can take turns drop one knee then drop the other knee so that's one little i call it guerrilla ergonomic um, strategy the other thing is to sit on a book like the old, remember the old days of phone books? <laughs> mm-hmm. Now we have to have some, you know, a, another stack of books. Um, it's it, so your sit bones are higher and that allows your knees to be a little bit lower than your your hips. And that is in turn allows your lumbar curve to be somewhat preserved. So you can sit up on something or you can walk out to the very edge and drop you know, alternate dropping your knees. And then, of course, there's the car. Are you going to ask me about what to do in a car? <laughs> yeah, yes. Tell us what to do in a car. Um, well, it, it's not easy because they design cars to make it seem like we're race car drivers that are going to zoom around corners and so need to be in bucket seats. <laughs> mm-hmm. When we act, uh, So what I do is I, you know, those garden kneeling pads that you can get to? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can use one or two of those to fill in the curve in the bottom of the seat. Mm. Um, so I, I so that my hips are not wildly lower than my than my knees, and I have an you know I make the the automatic features of the chair take me up uh, as much as possible at the back uh, at the butt, and then if the back is curved overly curved i might use one of those pads that i mentioned but i actually take a little physio ball a child like a child's ball it's about eight to ten inches in diameter and have it semi uh, inflated and i use that at my back so that i've got mobility supporting my lumbar curve but it's not stiff it's flexible so that's how i survive and um, other somatic practitioners i know have recommended that to me, and I thought it was, I, I have found it to be good advice. I, I'm going to offer one piece of advice to people who are worried about particularly how much time they spend, uh, consecutive minutes they're spending sitting, and there's a whole theory that you should walk for five minutes um, for every 30 minutes that you're sitting. Um, get a dog. Uh, the dog will absolutely tell you <laughs> uh, that you've been sitting too long, and the dog wants you to get up and walk, uh, and I find that that sort of keeps me pretty honest. I guess last question which is there's such a normalizing and, and uh, of sitting in a chair. Uh, it's sort of the default thing you do when you walk into a movie, walk into a classroom, go in for a meeting at the bank, whatever it is, you're going to sit in a chair. They're going to offer you a chair, pull up a chair. Um, and if you try to, I mean, you're probably somebody who tries to do something else in some of these situations. Um, and, and I'm assuming people think you're weird if you if you look at a chair and go, yeah, maybe not. Maybe I'll just sit on the floor or, you know, stretch out or something. Yes. So I just believe in t- talking to people and saying, you know, like I tell my students, look, 
you don't have to sit in order to listen to a lecture. You can just tell your lecturer, I'm going to stand at the back, but I'm still paying close attention. You, you need to say, well, oh, I'm, or maybe I would say, oh, I might um, lie down with my feet up <laughs> uh, rather than sit, um, but I'm paying attention. I just assure people that I'm attentive. And so that I, because we are violating a norm if we don't take the chair, because people offer you a chair because that's the polite thing to do. So we have to be polite back and explain why we're going to do something else. Galen Kranz, it's so great to talk to you, Professor Emerita of Architecture at the University of California at Berkeley, founding member of the Association for Body Conscious Design, the author of the very well-known book, The Chair, Rethinking Culture, Body, and Design, uh, certified teacher of the uh, Alexander Techniques, which we didn't have time to get into, but thank you so much for your time today. Oh, you're entirely welcome. I love talking to your audience. <laughs> okay. Uh, in our final segment today, we're going to talk to somebody who does make chairs and makes them uh, as well as they can possibly be made. All episodes of The Colin McEnroe Show are available 24-7 on any podcast app. If there's a place for reviews and ratings, give us lots of stars and be sure to mention the high thread count in our sheets and pillowcases, as well as the complimentary breakfast buffet. Have a question or comment? Email us at colinshow at ctpublic.org. Now, back to the show. And our producer today, or first of all, our technical producer today is Kat Pastor. And then the executive producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, Lily Tyson, is the producer... No, she's the senior producer. I'm the executive producer. Why don't I ever do anything? I'm the executive producer. Uh, the, she's the senior producer. And all those years as a child laborer painting those Hitchcock chairs in the factory, they're really paying off today for Lily Tyson. She's the producer of this episode. Joining us now is Aspen Golan, uh, an artist and furniture maker. She teaches in the furniture department at the Rhode Island School of Design and founded the Chairmaker Toolbox a project that provides free tools, education, and mentorship to increase equity and access in the field of chair making. Welcome to our conversation, Aspen. Thanks so much for having me. So you've been sitting listening, and I'm sure you wanted to burst right in a couple of times or ask a follow-up <laughs> question or whatever. So is there anything in particular that from the previous two segments you want to react to? Well, I have to say that I feel very guilty making so many chairs after hearing Galen speak. Yeah, you're kind of a <laughs> merchant of death, actually. But uh... I know, I know. At this point, though, I feel I'm more, um, I'm in some ways, as much a teacher of chair making as I am a sitter. <laughs> so, um, and a maker of chairs. So at this point, I feel like I can also think about my my trade as helping people move around and use tools and engage with wood and materials in order to make custom objects. So. Maybe I can, maybe I get some time off for that. What drew you to this? You started out um, in, maybe in a more conventional area of the fine arts, I, I think. What drew you to furniture and maybe chairs in particular? It's a great question. I ask myself it regularly. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I trained um, as an artist, but I always say that I play more bravely in a fenced area. <laughs> I think <laughs> what I mean by that, you know, is that I've making, been making art my whole life, but that I've always struggled with the complete freedom of like a blank page. 
And so for me, like rules and structure are not stifling. They're more of a creative catalyst. And so furniture is perfect. There's like tons of rules to react to and push back against, but also plenty of space to play. Um, there's a way that chairs are very intimate. I mean, I was talking about Archie Bunker earlier. I guess Vito brought him up. But your chair, one special chair, is an object that you spend a lot of time in. Various parts of your body are in very close contact with it for protracted periods of time. Certain chairs almost seem to kind of hug you a, a little bit. This is not kind of an emotionally neutral piece of furniture, but how do you see that? Oh, absolutely. I think that you know, all furniture is designed to interact with the human body, but the chair's connection is so much more intimate than with other furniture objects, as you said. I mean, you can reverse engineer a hand by looking at a glove, and I think that you can sort of reverse engineer a human body by looking at a chair. And I mean, so there's there's that physical intimacy, but there's also like a cultural intimacy to a chair in that, and I think, you know, other um, guests have touched on this already, but you can tell by looking at a chair what the sitter was intended to do in it, where the sitter was intended to look, you know, whether they were meant to sit for a long time or a short time with other people alone at a table and, at a, you know, on the floor. And then in addition, you know, to that, there's all the social and cultural values that are suggested by the design. So, you know, I think you can also sort of you know, reverse engineer a culture by looking at a chair. They're very intimate and like deeply intertwined objects. Windsor chairs are very important to you. And, and they're an interesting cultural statement too. You know, we've talked about the monoblock chairs that are just made by with plastic pellets being melted down. Windsor chairs are a little bit maybe more at the opposite uh, end of the spectrum in that they're closer to the tree that they used to be maybe than than certain chairs. Oh, Yeah. I mean, Windsor chairs, it's a rabbit hole I never intended to fall down. <laughs> I learned how to make one um, from a chairmaker named Peter Galbert in New Hampshire. And he, you know, I, he teaches these classes, these week-long classes, um, you know, many of which I now teach as well. And I, I took the class because I thought it would be, you know, a responsible, well-rounded way of engaging with that aspect of furniture making that, as you said, is so different than, you know, traditional cabinet making. And instead, I just I fell in love with it. And I think it is because of the intimacy of the materials. You know, they're really for those of you who don't, you know, read about make and think about chairs 24 hours a day. <laughs> I'll say that Windsor chairs, they're like they're a reflection of the landscape in which they were developed in a way that is so much more um, to use the same word again, intimate than other chairs and that they were they're made with commonly found domestic hardwoods. They work in harmony with the natural capacities of the material. So they're they're only made effectively by using the inherent strengths and weaknesses of different species. Um, I'll say that the process too, it's super traditional without being romantic. Like I start making a chair by often going out into the woods and finding a tree mm. or in felling a log and then splitting it up with iron wedges and you know, you often don't use power tools or even electricity, and it's not out of some desire to play act the past, but instead, because the fastest and most practical way to make a chair, a Windsor chair, is to fell a tree and split it by hand with iron wedges and shape the parts with hand tools. <laughs> and so, yeah, there's just, there's a kind of um, connection with the material. I think the quietude of the experience is also part of it. 
Um, and the aesthetics we associate with Windsor chairs are very much secondary to, you know, the 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 inherent um, components of the chair itself. Are you very conscious conscious of other chairs that you sit in? I would be uncomfortable having you in my house because uh, you <laughs> oh would sit God. down at the dining room table and you'd think this is a piece of crap. Who made this thing? Oh, no, no. There's always something to steal it from a chair. That's <laughs> how I think about it. And no, I mean, I'm the worst house guest because I will bust out a little bag that I carry at all times <laughs> with all of my little tools that I use for measuring different parts of chairs. So say I sit down at a chair in your house that you describe as you know garbage, but I'm sure it's gorgeous. And I sit in it and experience some tiny angle or some sort of aspect of it that is for some reason right. So I'll just be walking. I'm, I stopped myself from doing it today. I walked down the street and I saw chairs on someone's porch and I had to stop myself from... <laughs> Getting up there and measuring something because there was just something about the cant of the back of the seat that was just correct. Yeah. And so I have a little notebook where I collect all of this stuff. And yeah, I mean, these are all just parts and pieces that can be collaged into other works. Um, last question. I, you only have 60 seconds to do it. I'm sure you could talk <laughs> a lot more. But what's it like to sit, to sit uh, uh, contrastingly, what is it like to sit in a chair that you made, you made so lovingly, you made without electricity, you made from a tree that you felled or a log that you split? I, I'm assuming it's like sitting in part of yourself, kind of. It is a full circle experience. It's like sitting in your own time. I can rewind to any of the cuts that I made into the chair itself and, you know, find all of these different ultra-specific aspects of the material that have manifested in that particular object. Also, I don't sand my chairs, so I can literally see the cuts that I've taken on all of these. And honestly, I'm still relatively new to the to the scene, and it's just the most incredible thing to make an object that can hold up your body. Um, we have to stop. I, I do want to say, you're a beautiful talker. You talk you talk so poetically about this stuff. It's very moving. I love chairs. Yes. That, you know what? That's kind of coming through a little bit, that you love chairs. Uh, Aspen Golan, so great to talk to you. Uh, teaches in the furniture department at RISD. Uh, founded the Chair Maker Toolbox, a project that provides free tools, education, and mentorship to increase equity and access to in the field of chair making. Thanks to you for listening to. Let's leave with a little George Strait. To tell you the truth That wasn't my chair after all Oh, I like you too And to tell you the truth That wasn't my chair after all